episode of Monsters and Murder. I'm Sam. And I'm Shane. And tonight we have a, well, you may not be listening to this at night, maybe in the day, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, at least I know mine's going to bring you down, and generally I go second. I'm going to go first tonight, um, and then Shane will tell his story. Yes, which I don't know how much I'll bring it up this evening, but it'll it'll still be really fun, and I think our stories will be really good, and like you said, we're going to switch it up and see yes. how that goes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad we've had a good day because this, I've been reading about this and researching this for about a week and a half, and it has been, I've been crying about every day, uh-huh. so I'm hoping that I can get through it without breaking down. So if I sound like a robot, it's because I'm trying to get through without having a breakdown. And that's all right. That is. So before I get started, I've already warned Shane, but I'm going to warn you. There's a lot of death. I'm going to be talking about Irina Sendler, and she and a group of her friends helped rescue children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, So it's very dark. There's a lot of brutality, and so I just want to give you a heads up that this does include children, and it is very, very dark. Okay. With that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. All right. So, Irina Sindler was born in Warsaw, Poland on February 15th, 1910 to Stanislav and Janina. Um, Her father was a physician and a researcher of infectious disease at the hospital where she was born. He was also a political activist and one of the first members of the Polish, Polish Socialist Party. Her mother... Well, one of the books I read said her mother didn't have a career, uh-huh. so uh, staying at home, stay stay at home is a career. Yes. Um, but in the 1910s, it definitely was not recognized as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, her mother loved all people, and she also helped her father in his social work. And Yanina and Stanislav believed in equal rights for everyone, access to health care for everyone, and democracy, which... You know, they sound like great people. Yeah, that sounds like, fairly progressive for yeah, that time. Exactly, yeah. Mm. He instilled those beliefs in Arena. He told her that there are only two types of people in the world, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And that religion, nationality, race, socioeconomic status, your wealth, that does not matter. What matters is the person and how you treat people. Yes. And um, Arena said that one of her favorite sayings of her father was, if you see a man drowning you must try to save him even if you can't swim mm-hmm. and she lived by that saying when i read that and heard that the first time like there's something so beautiful about being like wanting to help somebody uh-huh and although Irina was not jewish she grew up embracing the jewish culture because her father was one of the only polish doctors that would treat poor jewish people and so she grew up learning about Jewish culture and traditions, mm-hmm. and she learned how to speak very basic Yiddish when she was a child. Oh, wow. That, that's a feat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she embraced it, and she, her parents wanted her to. And growing up in that environment where you just love people mm-hmm. because they're a person and they're worthy because they're a person. Yes. Um, in 1916, there was an epidemic of typhoid fever and Odvosk. And Stanislav, her father, he continued to provide treatment to the Jewish population when other people, other doctors, would not out of fear of infection. Mm -hmm. And it is a very contagious disease. Unfortunately, her father did contract the illness, and he passed away in 1917, just before she turned seven. Oh. 
um, the lessons that her father taught her about kindness and helping others stuck with her for the remainder of her life. She and her father were extremely close and she, she lived what he said. <laughs> During her time at the Polish Free University, Irina became close with one of her professors, Dr. Helena Rodlinska. Dr. Rodlinska was a pioneer in the social work field and eventually her programs would become the model for modern, modern social work in most Western democracies and state-supported welfare. Dr. Radlinska offered Irina a paid position at the Mother and Child Branch of the Citizens of Social Aid Committee. There, Irina provided assistance to unwed mothers in the, the city. Mm -hmm. and she loved it. She was compassionate and determined to fight back against injustice. And she was a fierce advocate for social ju justice and stood with her Jewish classmates against anti-Semitism rhetoric and ideology. So anti-Semitism, that was not something new. I mean, Arena grew up hearing anti-Semitic yeah, comments. Unfortunately. Yes. And so at one point at the Polish Free University, they were trying to separate the Aryans from the Jewish people. And so they have what they were called bench ghettos, which is essentially um, Aryans sit on one side of the classroom and Jewish people sit on the other side. Mm -hmm. And one day Irina went in and she was just so angry at how wrong it was. And uh -huh. she went and sat on the Jewish side. And a group of men came in and were beating the Jewish people and like made them stand up and you know they asked this woman why are you here and he said because I'm Jewish and he hit the the student and then he went to arena and she he said why are you standing and she said because I'm Jewish and he hit her too uh -huh. so she would fight back against social injustice and she would stand and she would be beaten mm -hmm. standing with her Jewish classmates arena became part of a group of mostly Jewish-born young women known as Dr. Radlinska's girls, and they were all ardent socialists focused on social justice. Um, the group included Ala Golob-Grinberg, Eva Rechtman, and Irina Erka-Schultz. Um, the women, this group of women would help Irina uh, to rescue hundreds of children and adults, and they all worked closely together to do so. By 1939, Irina had graduated and she was a social worker. On September 31st, mm -hmm. 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Um, the aerial attack began early that morning. The city was bombed and sprayed with artillery. The streets became littered with collapsed buildings, broken glass, and bodies. Mm. Um, Buildings were on fire, mm -hmm. and the air was filled with dust and smoke. And when Irina was, she ended up going to work that morning. She could not wait to get out of her apartment to go to work because she knew people were going to need help. Uh huh. And when she was on her way to work, she had to wear um, not a gas mask, but you know those like black masks because the yes. air was so filled with smoke, and everybody that she saw had like one of those protective masks on. Mm -hmm. During those first few weeks, she worked alongside um, Erka Schultz to help locate food and shelter for the people that had been bombed out of their homes. And towards the end of the month when medical supplies were running short, 
There was no food. There was no electricity. The streets were just piling up with dead bodies. Warsaw surrendered. When that happened, Irina, Dr. Radlinska, and the rest of Dr. Radlinska's girls quickly became involved in the underground Polish resistance to continue to provide aid to the Jewish people. During the first few months of the occupation, um, Jewish shop windows were smashed mm -hmm. and Jews were beaten in the streets for entertainment. At this time, it was not only the Jewish people being targeted, Hitler had actually given instruction to kill all people that were considered intellectuals, and this included doctors, teachers, lawyers, writers, activists, social workers, scientists, basically anyone with any kind of cultural power. Economic restri restrictions were enforced upon the Jewish community to ensure that anyone that was Jewish would be forced into poverty. They were no longer allowed to be employed in state or government positions, and those working in the resistance um, began going by an alias to avoid detection. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that really like broke my heart is Jewish people were no longer allowed to visit city parks, and they would be beaten if they were. Which is like, insane. To think about just walking down the street. Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous for you to just walk down the street. Yeah. There's, like, I have no words. Usually I have a lot of words, and I have none when I think about that kind of hate. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. Same. Um, Irina's group of friends grew to include Yadviga Deneka and Yadviga Petrovska. She went by Yaga, and they would help to provide assistance as well as the director of the social welfare department, Jan Dobrzynski. And so I'm mentioning these names, and I know it's a lot of names, um, and I won't keep repeating all of them. I just want you to know that there were a lot of people involved in helping Irina do what Irina did. Mm -hmm. um, during that first year, Irina and Dr. Radlinska's girls provided public welfare support to thousands of Jews in Warsaw, and they did this by faking files to continue... To continue to be able to receive assistance. Oh, okay. So you yes. had to ask what, how they would fake them, but yeah. I see now. So they would make up names to be able to secure money, food, and clothing, and then they would distribute it out to the people in need. Mm -hmm. And to avoid detection from the Germans, who may wish to check in on the fake families um, that Irina and her friends had created, they would include notes in the files indicating that many of the families had communicable diseases like cholera and typhus. Oh. And the Germans were terrified of contracting disease, mm -hmm. so they pretty much stayed away and did not investigate any of those. That was very files. smart. Yes. <laughs> By the fall of 1940, restriction on the Jewish population had become even stricter. Um, Jewish people were forced to wear an armband with the Star of David to make them easier to identify. Synagogues were forced to close, curfews were imposed, and... Um, the Jewish people were not allowed to use city phones. At this time, Germans began to distribute propaganda newspapers that blamed Jews for the economic, economic struggles during the time and also labeled them as deserty, deserty, dirty <laughs> and disease carriers. Mm. I'd rather be labeled deserty. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they probably would have too. <laughs> um, all Warsaw Jews were required to complete a, a census 
indicating their birth date and age as well as their address. All Jewish males between the ages of 12 and 60 were required to register as a candidate for forced labor. 12, like, 12 year olds, to, I mean, even 18 year olds are all still kids. Yeah, and it did not matter if you had a health condition or you mm-hmm. of course not could not physically do it you were required and forced labor meant you do it or you die mm-hmm. Irina and her colleagues worked tirelessly to provide aid and began creating more false documents that would allow Jews to leave Warsaw to travel to safer places um, and so if you had family in a different country that was surrounding a lot of times you could or she would try to get them out there uh-huh um, they also began creating a network of Polish safe havens, which were families that would agree to hide Jews until it was safe for them again. Um, but in an effort to separate the Jews from the Aryans further, Jewish people were forced to move into a designated area of Warsaw, which became known as the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. About 400,000 Jews were pushed into an area of about 1.3 square miles. Oh my God. Um, people were literally living on top of each other in tenement yeah. housing. Each room, like each room, not each home, mm-hmm. each room held anywhere between seven and nine people. Good grief. In November of 1940, a brick wall was built around the ghetto. The ghetto was, or the wall was about 10 feet tall and it was topped with barbed wire. Anyone trying, caught trying to escape was executed on site. Um, at that time, well, r- really before they had started issuing food rations. Mm-hmm. And it was a card that indicated like how much of this you got, how much of that you got. And the Germans, um, the SS, they were getting like 2,500 calories a day. Mm-hmm, of course. The food that was being rationed to the Jewish people was equivalent to about 184 calories a day. It's hardly any. That's less than an apple. Yeah. People were literally starving to death. And when you, you can go on YouTube or you just Google photos, Mm -hmm. it is so disturbing to... And, and people were dying on the street because there was not enough to eat. And their mm-hmm. bodies were just being, like, disposed of. With so many people in such a tight area, illness began to spread quickly. Typhus and lice were running rampant. And the two combined together, along with having nothing to eat, was deadly. Inside the ghetto, the SS soldiers had organized an auxiliary unit of Jewish police to help enforce the law inside the ghetto and dish out cruel punishments. So they were basically having Jewish people, like they were pitting people against each other. Mm-hmm. Arena, along with Erka Schultz, used their connections within the social welfare department and underground Polish resistance to obtain an epidemic control pass, which allowed her to enter the ghetto under the guise of being a nurse there to treat the sick. Uh-huh. And because the Germans were so terrified of catching anything, Arena was able to enter the ghetto multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. Initially, she used this as an opportunity to sneak in much-needed vaccinations and medications that were not available in the ghetto. She would also sneak in food, and she would sew money into the lining of her medical supplies bag. Wow. 
And because they did not want to catch anything, they very rarely, like if they asked her to open her bag and they saw like soiled rags and bandages, they didn't check any further. Mm-hmm. So she was able to sneak money in that way. Um, some of the SS could be bribed. And so that was beneficial for the people inside the ghetto. Um, and also because of the lack of food in the ghetto, they, um, the Jewish people were turning to the black market to obtain food and just general supplies needed to survive. Black market pricing of just basic everyday items like a potato were sometimes five and ten times the cost of what the item should be. That's terrible. Yeah. The money Irina was able to smuggle in made the difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would also smuggle in clothes. Irina was tiny. like She was less than five feet tall. And there were times where she would go into the ghetto. And with her epi- epidemic control, she was going in like three and four times a day. Uh-huh. And sometimes she would go into the ghetto wearing five layers of clothing mm-hmm. and leave wearing only one. <laughs> um, she would also sneak toys into the children in Dr. Korshak's orphanage. And Dr. Korshak was a Polish Jewish doctor that ran the one of the orphanages in the ghetto. Mm-hmm. He was also an author before his time in the ghetto uh-huh. um, when he was forced to move there. He wrote books on children's development. Um, and he kept diaries of his time in the ghetto. And after um, everything was over and they were able to go in and get his journals he wrote a lot about how he and his staff just struggled to provide food and protect the children's emotional and mental well-being because i mean you were seeing terrible things people were just lined up and shot for no reason yeah people and i was a little bit confused when i was reading this because i guess it's it's been a very long time since i've had a history lesson and Mm -hmm. i don't mean to sound ignorant but it's been a very long time since i've looked at this part in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was a little bit confused about what the ghetto looked like versus the concentration camps. Uh-huh. I mean, it truly was not much different. But they were able, like in the ghetto, they could go to different people's rooms, you mm-hmm. know, in their house. Um, and so you would be walking to someone's home shot because you're Jewish mm-hmm. or you would be, you know, groups of people when they were, because they were still forced labor, they would, ta- the SS were taking them out of the ghetto uh-huh. for forced labor and would just shoot them when they're walking to go to work. Jewish children and teens that were small enough to fit through the gaps in the brick wall would sneak out because there, I mean, it was a literal wall built around the ghetto. Mm-hmm. So if, they were small enough to fit through the gaps. They would sneak out when they could uh-huh. to find food and bring it back to their families. Aww. If they were caught, they were executed. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty soon, Arena and her liaisons that were going in and out of the ghetto with their um, epidemic control pass began sneaking children out of the ghetto. Ala Golob Grenberg and Eva Rechtman, two of Dr. Ratlinska's girls, were both Jewish and had been forced into the ghetto. Mm-hmm. Allah was a nurse and Eva ran a youth circle next to the orphanage. And so they were connections that Irina had inside the ghetto. Uh-huh. So in the beginning, 
Irina began sneaking orphans out of the ghetto because there weren't going to be any parents asking where they went. Mm-hmm. Um, and Irina and her friends used many different tactics for getting out of the children out of the ghetto. The courthouse in Warsaw, half of it sat on the Aryan side and half of it sat in the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to sneak children out that way. They found a way to get past the checkpoints, and that included bribing guards. Uh-huh. Children who were truly sick could be taken out of the ghetto legally in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, children that did not appear sick enough by SS guard standards um, were often hidden in the ambulance under soiled medical racks because they weren't going to check that. Ooh. And then children were also... This is very disturbing. Mm -hmm. Um, Children were also taken out of the ghetto in coffins that carried children that had (gasps) passed away. Oh, Oh, goodness. Just... Yeah. It's really dark. It's really Mm -hmm. dark. Yeah. Um, Once outside the ghetto, the group worked to provide the children with new Polish identities. Um, A unit... Irina and her co-conspirators used blank or forged birth certificates mm-hmm. um, to provide the new identities. When Irina and her friend Yaga realized that they were going to need a lot more um, documents than they had, uh-huh. they had to bring in Jan Dobrzynski. And he was the director of the social welfare department. Mm-hmm. And when asking people because they had people that did volunteer to help yeah in the Polish resistance but there were times where they had to ask people for help Mm -hmm. and that was very dangerous because at that time you had blackmailers and you had people that were being paid to be not necessarily spies but to tell Mm -hmm. if someone came to them and asked for help so they had to weigh the risk is this person really someone that I can trust and that will help me mm-hmm. and then if you were the person being asked you had to question whether or not the person asking you was trying to trick you into doing something that would get you killed Uh huh. everybody that helped was risking their life because if you were caught assisting a Jewish person in any way you would be killed and not only would they kill you they would kill your entire family in front of you, starting with your children. Oh, God. Yeah. In some instances, when creating this forged document, also really dark, um, when a Christian child died inside an orphanage, Mm -hmm. instead of reporting the death, they wouldn't report the death. They would give that child's name and registry number to one of the children that had been rescued from the ghetto. Oh, the children that had been rescued from the ghetto were placed in convents, orphanages, and in the foster families that were helping. Mm-hmm. Um, children that were old enough to speak were taught Catholic prayers, reminded that they must not speak Yiddish, and they had to learn their new name. They basically had to have a new identity. Mm-hmm. And kids are, re- like, the really young kids probably did not understand all that. No, completely. and there were times when they had, you know, gotten a child out of the ghetto. And I read two different stories that, mm-hmm. um, I, it sounded like they were referring to the same thing, but I don't, I'm not 100% certain because I read two different books, um, but there was a, an incident 
where a child that had been snuck out of the ghetto, they were on a train or a bus, Mm -hmm. and the child was scared, and they started speaking in Yiddish. Oh, no. And everybody on the bus just started staring. And the... In one instance, I read it was Irana that was with the child, and another instance, I, I believe it was Erka that was with the child, so mm-hmm. I'm not 100% certain, but um, they, like she was just like, this is it, like, I'm, we're going to be killed, Yeah. Um, because this child's not supposed to be with me, and so at that time, like, the bus driver stopped the bus, and he was like, everybody off the bus, there's something wrong with the bus, mm-hmm. and so he got, everybody was leaving, and so... Um, Either Irina or Erka, whoever was with the child, got the child's hand and they were walking off the bus and he said, not you. And he made them sit down and he basically asked them, like, I'll take you as far as I can take you and leave, like, leave you in a safe place so you can get to where you need to go. Oh, that was not the way I thought that story was going to go. No, there were so many times in reading these reports that my heart was beating so fast Mm -hmm. that I had to, like, stop myself. Yeah. Um... Some of the children that were rescued were easier to place because they had more traditional Polish looks. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the children did not. And, like, on their paperwork, it they were basically marked as having, like, bad looks, which mm-hmm. meant they could not be passed for, like, a Polish child. Uh-huh. And so, in those instances, they must... They had to remain hidden at all costs. So, whoever, like, if they were in the orphanage or a foster family... They could not be seen. Jewish boys were often disguised as girls. Mm-hmm. They would cut their hair and dye their hair to make them appear more um, Polish. And the reason for this is, again, this is going to get dark. So, it was not an uncommon occurrence for men or boys that appeared to be Jewish to be stopped on the streets, um, like on the Aryan mm-hmm. side, and be forced to reveal themselves. And so, circumcision would have been an automatic death sentence for any Jewish um, boy or man that was discovered to be living on the Aryan side. Mm-hmm. And so, that's why they would disguise them as little girls, because they were less likely to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Irina and her colleagues soon began to hear talk of a liquidation of the ghetto and that prisoners were going to be deported to Treblinka. Treblinka was one of the two major death camps Mm. during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, Initially, Jewish captors were made to believe that this was just going to be a work camp and that it would be better than living in the ghetto. Um, That was not the case. Like Being sent to Treblinka... The only thing that was there was death. Um, so, when they were sent to Treblinka, um, Jews were forced to walk to Umschlag Platz to await deportation. And that's basically just a holding area where they had them. And wow. a lot of times they were forced to like stay there overnight if there weren't enough trails. And when they were sent there, it was... Like, they were brutalized. They were forced into cattle cars Mm -hmm. encased in barbed wire. And they were forced in there and, like, packed in there. And it didn't matter if you were injured or elderly or a child. did not matter. Mm -hmm. 
and there were usually two trips one in the morning and one in the evening and Nazis had or the SS had given um, had a quota of deporting 6,000 people per day good goodness that's yeah. so many they usually succeeded in deporting around 10,000 Mm-hmm. It is estimated that around 300,000 Jews were deported from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka from the fall of 1942 to the spring of 1943. 300,000? 300,000 people. All I can do is shake my head. <laughs> I mean, that number, like, it's such a huge number, it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. That's 300,000 people with a name that had alive before Mm -hmm. you know and I was just thinking earlier today when I was preparing myself for this but 300,000 people who had a job had a family they had a favorite food and a favorite Mm -hmm. movie and a favorite song and when they were in the ghetto when they were being sent to Treblinka they weren't anything they were just a body walking yeah and at that point, like, they had been so starved and so brutalized. Mm-hmm. It was just like a shell of a person. I mean, physically, not, you know, not emotionally. They still felt everything. They still thought everything. But what they thought and what they felt did not matter. Once talk of relocation began, Irina and her liaisons worked overtime to get children out of the ghetto. Uh-huh. And at that time, Marina realized that she would now need to start asking parents and grandparents to give her their children so she could attempt to get them out of the ghetto. And it was gut-wrenching yeah. to ask a ch- parent to give their child over. Mm-hmm. And some of them agreed and some of them did not. Some of them asked Irina if she could guarantee their child would make it out. And she had to tell them she couldn't guarantee mm-hmm. that. She couldn't even guarantee that she and their child would get out of the ghetto. Um, but she told them the only guarantee that she could provide was Treblinka if they stayed. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, when Arena began smuggling babies out of the ghetto, mm-hmm. oftentimes she would sedate them so they didn't cry when they were on their way out. Yeah, she had no other choice. Yes. Um, during one rescue of an infant, Arena had been receiving assistance from, um, one of the books called him the hygiene wagon driver. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, his name was Anthony, and I'm assuming it's just someone that had been bringing in medical supplies. Mm-hmm. So when Arena brought the baby out hidden, and she would put babies in like carpenter's boxes and briefcases yeah. and like burlap sacks and mm-hmm. hide them. So she brought the baby out, and she noticed that Anthony had his dog with him, and she was just she was not happy because she did not want to receive any unnecessary attention. Yeah. But he assured her everything would be okay. So Irina cleared a spot in the back of the wagon, placed the box, and then covered it up. And so, when they arrived at the gate leaving the ghetto, there was a long line waiting to get out Mm -hmm. and as they were waiting arena began to hear the baby whimper and cry in the back and so as they approached the gate anthony tapped his dog on the paw twice and the dog began to whimper and bark and pretty soon arena couldn't tell if she was hearing a baby or a dog oh wow that's so the ss (laughs) the ss approached 
and started yelling at him to shut the dog up. as Because they, any car that was leaving or coming in was searched mm-hmm. to make sure they weren't trying to smuggle anybody out uh-huh. or bring anything in. And so they were yelling at him to shut the dog up and the dog just wouldn't show, shut up. So the SS like pulled his gun out and was pointing it at the dog and he told him like shut the dog up or I'm going to shoot the dog and um, so they're trying to get him shut up and the SS he's just getting angrier and angrier and then he points the gun at Antony and he tells him like if you don't shut the dog up I'm going to shoot you so Irina gently opened her door and there was a younger SS guard standing Mm -hmm. beside her and she was just being very like kind and passive she's like I'm so sorry the dog's young we're trying to get them to to learn and listen and so some of the other guards kind of like laughed and finally let them pass. Mm-hmm. And so once they were outside the ghetto, Anthony tapped the dog twice on the paw again and the dog stopped barking. <laughs> and so, I mean, there were a lot of different ways that they got children out of the mm-hmm. ghetto. Um, they would try to sneak them out during the evening when the slave laborers were coming back in. Because the guards were more interested in making sure that they had all returned and, like, hadn't smuggled in food or basic necessities to survive. And so they were more interested in that than making sure, like, Irina was not taking anything out. She made it a top priority of hers to keep lists of the names of every child she rescued from Mm -hmm. the ghetto. And she would keep them on, like, tiny cigarette paper or, like, pieces of tissue paper and she would include their their Jewish name, their new name, and the address of where they were going because mm-hmm. she wanted desperately to be able to reunite the children and their families once yeah. everything was over. Um, but unfortunately, over 90% of the children's parents died at Treblinka. Which is such a shame. Um, she and Yaga hid the list in jars buried under a tree in Yaga's backyard <laughs> and that way she could dig them back up mm-hmm. um, she wanted to be able to give them back their identity um, many of the Jewish children that were smuggled out had to be baptized into a different faith and that was really difficult for their biological families it was extremely painful yeah. knowing that the entirety of their child's history and who they are as a person were going to disappear to mm-hmm. keep their child safe. And so it was devastating. Yeah. Devastating. Um, when children were baptized and became, in air quotes, became Catholic, mm-hmm. and they were given a new identity, they were also given new and authentic documents and church records, which provided a type of safety for those children that the fake documents could not. Uh-huh. Because that's one good thing that came from that. Yeah. And it... There is, when Arena took the children out of the ghetto and their parents had agreed, the only thing that I could think of is like, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I have little people in my life that I would gladly die for. Mm -hmm. As a parent, knowing, like, when you're being marched to Umschlagplatz to wait for the cattle car to take you to Treblinka and you know you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you did the last 
thing you could for your child to keep them alive. Like, even if it meant that they were baptized into a new faith, knowing that they were safe and the peace of mind that you must feel just in the middle of all that fear. <laughs> That's something. It's so upsetting. Mm -hmm. So upsetting. And so what I'm about to say is also very, very upsetting. And this, when I read this in the book, I could not handle it. Uh-huh. Okay. So on the day when Arena received notice that Dr. Korshak's orphans were being sent to Umschlagplatz for deportation to Treblinka, she rushed to the ghetto, but there was nothing she could do. Oh, no. Um, they had started, they called it roundups, mm -hmm. and they had started it early, and she could not sneak any of those children out. Um, she had become extremely close with Dr. Korshak and the children at the orphanage. Mm -hmm. And they all, like, would get really excited when they saw her coming, and she had, like, brought in toys for them. Yeah. Dr. Korshak and his staff and the orphans walked the two miles from the orphanage to Umschlagplatz, and it took them about three hours. Mm-hmm. And Irina actually saw them as they were walking. And Dr. Korshak had the children dressed nicely, and he was offering words of encouragement to them. He had them singing, and Arena realized that he was doing everything he could to keep them calm and keep their spirits upbeat as they were literally being marched to their death. Um, some of the children were carrying books and some held on to toys. Uh-huh. And when they arrived at Umschlagplatz, one of the SS handed Dr. Korshak a note. And it was basically saying that he didn't have to go. He could go back to the ghetto. But Dr. Korshak declined and he and his staff were loaded into the cattle cars with their children and were sent to Treblinka. Well, he never left them. Mm -mm. And that's a, a common theme like that I was reading that the people that were in the ghetto, like even though it was so scary and there was so much death, there was so much love. Mm -hmm. With the people in there, like being willing to die for. Mm hmm. Yes. Um, Arena. So once the deportations had began, um, everybody was doing everything they could by any means necessary to get children out of the ghetto. Yeah. Uh, she used couriers, which were often teenage girls. That mm -hmm. would help her sneak children out of the ghetto through the sewers. And they all ran the risk of being caught. Yeah. If they were caught, they would be sent to Paviak prison and they would be questioned and tortured to give up the names of the people they were working with. Mm -hmm. um, and if they, you know, if they weren't killed on the spot. I mean, it was a huge risk for everybody involved. So after deportations to Treblinka began and was well underway, Arena had been contacted by Zagoda. And Zagoda was the Polish council to Jewish Jewish to aid Jews. Sorry, uh -huh, that's okay. Um, it was part of the underground Polish resistance, and it was funded by the Polish government in exile in London. Mm -hmm. So Zagoda had different departments, and they provided food, clothing, medical assistance, just the basic needs um, for Jews hiding on the Aryan side of the German occupation zone. So they also provided false documents, and new identities. And when um, Arena was approached, 
they told her that they wanted her to be the head of the children's department. Mm-hmm. Jagoda had money and they had ties to religious clergy and wealthy families willing to hide Jewish children. And Arena had a network of people in and out of the ghetto that could sneak the children out. Uh-huh. Um, people working in this underground network went by code names to try and ensure the safety of everybody involved. Arena's code name was Yolanta. And many of the children that Arena rescued only knew her by that name. Mm-hmm. Um, even after the ghetto Warsaw, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising mm-hmm. in May of 1943, Arena continued her efforts as best she could. Um, and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was when the remaining survivors in the ghetto led a fight against the Germans. Um, those remaining in that time used what weapons they could find homemade grenades, and they would fight hand-to-hand combat with the Germans. And I read one report where some of the like younger teenage girls would hide the grenades in like their under undergarments uh-huh. and wait until the SS got close enough before they took them out and detonated them. Mm-hmm. So, even though those in the ghetto did cause some German casualties, it was not enough to save the people in the ghetto. Yeah. And at that time, German troops sent an estimated additional 42,000 Jews that were still in the ghetto into forced labor camps at Ponitova and Travaniki mm-hmm. and to the Lublin concentration camp. And then the Germans set the remaining of the ghetto on fire going building by building and there were people hiding in the buildings Mm -hmm. there was one report where mothers were jumping out of windows with their babies Mm -hmm. that's all they could do yeah they also leaked gas into the sewer to kill anyone trying to hide or escape (gasps) there were so i've left out a lot Mm -hmm. um one because i didn't write the books. I read two different books. I didn't write Mm -hmm. the books and I don't want to to give everything out that someone else worked for. But two, it is so upsetting and so disturbing. Yeah. In the fall of 1943, Irina was eventually captured by the Gestapo. Oh no. And she was sent to Paviak prison. She was beaten and tortured as the Gestapo tried to um, get her to share information and give names. At the time, they only thought Irina was a conspirator. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that she was a high-ranking member of Shigoda. Uh-huh. And Irina stuck to the story that she and her social or her colleagues had formulated in case they were captured. In Paviak, like when, when she arrived, they had doors to the interrogation rooms. But they were left open and you just heard people screaming. Oh. Things are nightmares. Um, after she was beaten, she would be forced to work in the laundry room for hours on end after being beaten and suffering unimaginable torture. Mm -hmm. Um, one day all of the women that were working in the laundry room were called outside and a German police officer was holding up a pair of underwear that had a hole in it. And so they had to wash the literal shit out of German officers' underwear. Like, that's what they were doing in the laundry room. And 
like after a while, like your fabric is going to start disintegrating. Yeah. Like that's just, that happens. And so there was a hole in the underwear and he was pissed because he thought they did it on purpose. And so he had all the women line up and he called out 10 names and had those women step back. And Arena was not called to step back. Mm-hmm. And she like she thought like this is it I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but the officer went to all of the ten women that had been called back and shot them. <gasps> and Arena watches they just like pulled their bodies out of the way so they could go back to work. Mm-hmm. Arena was in Paviac prison for several months before she was sentenced to death, and she saw the worst kind of I mean not the worst kind of brutality she saw the worst brutality in the ghetto mm-hmm. but she witnessed unimaginable torture yeah and still German police did not know how high of a ranking member she mm-hmm. was in Jagoda and on the day of Arena's execution she went to the holding room along with the other prisoners that were to be executed that day and so at Paviak they would call a list of names, and if your name was called, like you knew you were getting executed that day, and mm-hmm. you went and you sat in this room, and as they called each person's name, they would walk out the door, everybody inside would hear gunshots, and then the next name would be called. And so on that day when her name was called, the guard called her to a door on the opposite side of the room, mm-hmm. and she just thought like she was being questioned further. And she was kind of just like heartbroken. She's like, she just wanted it to be over. Yeah. She just wanted it to be over. Um, but what had actually happened is that that executioner had been bribed by Jagoda. Mm-hmm. And he was letting Irina go. Wow. Yes. So she escaped? She did get out of Paviak. Mm-hmm. But Irina and her network had kept amazing records. Unfortunately, most of those children were not able to be reunited because their parents had died at Treblinka. Mm-hmm. Um, but on based on their records, Arena and her network of help was able to rescue 2,500 children and an additional 500 adults. That's very impressive. It just thinking about going into the ghetto multiple times a day, seeing mm-hmm. the. the Brutality and the worst of humanity, and you do it day and day and day. And she constantly like worried. She, you know, especially when the deportations began, she's seeing you know six thousand people being taken out of the ghetto to Treblinka to be sent to the gas chamber. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, we only say fifteen kids today. Yeah. Um, under communist rule. Um, Arena was not able to speak freely about what she had done um, and how she had fought so hard against the injustices that she saw. Many of the children that Arena had saved eventually relocated to Israel. Mm -hmm. And so as they grew up, like Arena in Poland could not talk about what she had done. Yeah. But as the children grew up and they were in Israel, they began to tell stories about Arena Mm -hmm. and how she had saved them. And in 1965... Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Organization in Israel, awarded Arena its highest honor. She was named uh, Righteous Among the Nations, and a tree was planted in her honor at the Mount of Remembrance. Mm-hmm. However, the Soviets refused to authorize Arena's passport, and she was not able to travel to Jerusalem to accept the award. Oh. 
they saw her as a dissident and a public menace. Oh, goodness. And it wasn't until, yeah. It wasn't until the 1980s that Arena was able to travel to Israel Mm -hmm. and reunite with some of the children she had saved. Um, Most of them only knew her by her codename Yolanta. Uh Uh-huh. But she was the last face that they saw and that they remembered. Mm -hmm. And she was in her 70s at that time. And then in 1999, a group of students in Kansas were assigned to create a project, um, Shining Light on an Unsung Hero. It was a group of three girls, and they decided they wanted to learn more about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And they found an article and came across Arena's name. And when they read that she had rescued 2,500 children, they were like, that has to be a typo. Like, this woman saved more kids than Schindler. (laughs) And so they did a Google search, and they only got, like, one hit. Uh Uh-huh. But after doing some digging, they were able to locate Irina and found out she was still alive. (gasps) So they began writing to Irina. Mm -hmm. And they created a play about her heroic deedles titled... Deedles. (laughs) (laughs) Deeds titled Life in a Jar. And the girls actually got to travel to Poland to meet Arena. Mm -hmm. And they actually would make several trips after to meet with her. Arena received recognition from the president of Poland and a letter from Pope John Paul II in 2003. Oh, wow. And she also received the Order of the White Eagle, which is the highest honor given to military and civilians for their merits in Poland. Mm-hmm. She was also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. And even though she did not win, she received much acclaim for that. Uh-huh. That same year, Holocaust education became mandatory in schools in Poland. And Arena was also... Awarded the Order of the Smile, which is an international award given by children to adults Mm -hmm. that are being recognized for their love and aid of children. Arena passed away in 2008 at the age of 98, and she was posthumously awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award in 2009 from the Sister Rose Thering Endowment, and she was also posthumously awarded the Audrey Hepburn Humanitarian Award. Mm-hmm. Two memorial plaques were hung in her honor on streets where she lived and worked during the 30s and 40s. And uh, several schools in Poland have also been named after Arena. And in 2016, sorry, 2016, a permanent exhibit of Arena's life was established at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes in Fort Scott, Kansas, which is where. The high school students went to school. Uh-huh. But in all of the interviews, when Arena was able to finally come out and talk about it, she stressed, like, I'm not a hero. I'm just doing what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to be a hero. And then she also said that she wished that some of her comrades were still alive to be able to receive that recognition. Yeah. Um, and not everybody that helped Arena escaped mm-hmm. I one of the books stated that Eva which was the social worker that worked at the um, had the children's group mm-hmm. um, arena had tried both with Allah and Eva to get them to leave 
and she, you know, told him, like, I can find you a safe place. Please just come with me. You're my friend. I want to get you out of here. Yeah. And at one point, Eva told her, just stop asking. My family's here. My children are here. I cannot leave. Mm-hmm. And they, Eva and Ala were both sent to Treblinka. Mm-hmm. There were so many times, and I've not broken down like I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many times listening to, because I did listen to um, an ebook because I wanted to make sure I got the names right. Mm-hmm. When I listened to the part about Dr. Korshak and the children in the orphanage, could not control it. Oh no, I was sitting here like trying to hold back tears myself. There's something just so uh, beautiful about being able to just like willingly mm-hmm. risk your life on a daily basis to save somebody that you don't know. Yeah. And I would hope that I would be able, you know, I think everybody would want to be in arena, mm-hmm. but... One thing that I've constantly had to remind myself is, like, not everybody can be in arena. Not everybody is going to be able to go in and, like, pull those children out. Exactly. But there are so many other things you can do. And arena was, like, the first person to say, I didn't do it by myself. Mm-hmm. So do something else to help somebody. Yeah. And in light of everything that has happened recently, when you feel so helpless, there are things you can do. Mm-hmm. And you're just one person. But Arena was just one person. Exactly. And Jan Dobrashinsky was just one person. And Ala Golab Grinberg was just one person. But together they made a difference. Mm-hmm. And they saved 2,500 children's yes. lives. So I wanted something like This was not light, but mm-hmm. there was light at the end of that. There, there, were, there was, yes. I'm glad you told that story. <laughs> Me too. I'm glad, to, um, I'm glad that I've told it. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I will be able to watch something funny or read something funny after it's over. <laughs> yes, after this. Yes. Okay, so my story today is the Waverly Hills Sanatorium Hauntings. Ooh, every time that you say that, I just think of Wizards of Waverly Place and I just want to start singing. <laughs> okay. okay, so our story begins in 1883. A man by the name of Thomas H. Hayes, a former Confederate major, purchased the parcel of land that would be the future home of Waverly Hills Sanatorium. He built a home for himself and his family that became known as the Hayes Family Home. I did discover through my research that this was Thomas's second family as his first wife and daughter both died shortly after the war, which is the Civil War. And I feel like at that time, like, you got a cough and you died. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> which, you know, it goes into what this history is. It is. Okay, and I also put this note in here. Can you imagine if people were naming schools after their favorite books today? Goosebump Elementary. (laughs) Yes, Game of Thrones High. Or my personal favorite, and I thought I was really clever thinking of this, so it's a total dad joke, but Fifty Shades of Grade School. (laughs) (laughs) You know it would exist somewhere. It happens, and of course some people don't know how to spell, so somewhere along the lines the E was dropped and it became just Waverly without the E. They are probably hooked on phonics. (laughs) Well, you know, they didn't, have, they didn't have spell check back then, but if they had the spell check we have now, it doesn't work anymore either. No. Auto, I don't want to know what autocorrect would have sent that. <laughs> so by the early 1900s, Thomas was in his senior years, his children were grown, and there was very little farming actually being done on the land. Thomas was approached about selling his farm by the still relatively new tuberculosis board of Louisville. The community was in a growing need to find a place to care for the many cases of tuberculosis which were springing up fast among those who lived in the area. So Thomas sold his farm in 1908 and moved closer to the city once more 
but he would only live a year longer and died the next year or so. Oh, jeez, that's sad. Yes, that's the end of his story. This is where the sanatorium story begins. So the tuberculosis board, you know, they had searched many properties throughout the county to try to find one that would have everything that they would need to be a self-sustained community. And the Hayes Farm was the only property that would meet all the requirements that they needed. So with money appropriated by the city and the county, the sanatorium opened in 1910 and kept the name Waverly Hills. So was the sanatorium, was it built there? Yes. Uh, okay. I didn't they, know that was like his house Yeah, there. they built, essentially, essentially they added on and they keep adding on throughout the years. Um, and at one point, you hear in my notes, the goal was to add another building every year. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, were they not trying to like find medicine to... For TV or just, just Oh, we will talk about going. what they thought was medicine for TV. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so the Waverly Hills Sanatorium was built as a self-sufficient community with its own zip code, post office, water treatment. They raised their own meat for slaughter. They grew their own fruits and vegetables. If it wasn't a TV facility, it sounded like a pretty cool place to uh, live. A little bit. <laughs> you know, if it wasn't a sanatorium, yeah, if it, it wasn't might... it was a treatment facility. It might be, you know, something else. But everyone, including doctors and other employees, were unable to leave the grounds. Once you went to Waverly Hills, you became a permanent resident. So you had to take everything you owned with oh, you. no thank you. Mm -hmm. No thank you. And tuberculosis was so bad in this area due to the proximity to the wetlands from the Ohio River that it was a perfect breeding ground for the disease. Yeah. What also did not help was when visitors were allowed to come in on visiting days, they would visit their loved ones or whoever they knew in the sanatorium and then the visitors would just leave, go back out into the world, potentially having picked up this disease had they not already been exposed to it on their own. Does this and, not sound familiar? <laughs> right? <laughs> Very head on the nail right now. Kind of. Not as bad as it was, but... But yeah, so that also helped the spread because yeah. you could go in and visit and you wouldn't be sick and you would leave thinking you were not sick and you might have picked up the disease while visiting. That's so scary. Mm-hmm. In 1912, patients from the Louisville City Hospital were relocated into temporary quarters in tents on the grounds of Waverly Hills. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, imagine how great that was. And in December of 1912, a hospital for advanced cases were opened on the grounds for a treatment of another 40 patients. In 1914, a children's pavilion was added. And this pavilion was not only for sick children, but also for the children of the tuberculosis patients who could not be cared for on the property otherwise. It was also said that their goal, and here it is, their goal was to add another building each year. And in 1926, construction was completed on the Gothic Collegiate Expansion, expansion that we now know as the Waverly Hills Sanatorium. So that made the structure five stories capable of holding more than 400 patients. Whoa! Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge. Like, I did not realize, because I've seen it here and there on some ghost shows, which I'll list out at the end as well. Um, but I did not realize how huge it really that is. massive. Mm-hmm. So little was known about tuberculosis that people and medical experts also did not understand how contagious the disease really was. It was airborne. So all of these doctors, nurses, children, you know, if they had just bought children with them because they were sick and the children weren't sick, um, anyone that visited and other Waverly workers were at risk for catching tuberculosis. Can you imagine being a doctor at that time and not having all of the technology that we have mm -hmm. now and just going in just on yeah. a prayer? It's, it, it was rough <laughs> at best, and they didn't know it was rough. Because so little was known about it, the treatment for tuberculosis was questionable at best and horrific at worst. No. 
Doctors began noticing that patients that had access to fresh air and sunshine seemed to be better off than others. So patients were set in two large open air pavilions where they were displaced to receive their prescribed fresh air and sunshine. And this became known as the good vibes method. That's what you get when you go on vacation, not when you're sick. <laughs> exactly. Or I was going to say, anytime you post something on Facebook, especially if you post something kind of cryptic and everyone's like, good vibes, sending good vibes. I mean, I, I have been guilty of like telling someone good vibes. Oh, like, absolutely. Via text, but mm-hmm. I won't be saying that anymore. No, I mean, it's not a treatment. Like if you go to the doctor and your doctor's like, I'm going to send you good vibes or I'm going to give you good vibes outside. Here's some sunshine. Exactly. Now you owe me $3,000 for this 15 minute visit. <laughs> yeah, right. So other parts of the treatment included a diet rich in vitamin a, vitamins A and C, as well as a lot of protein and plenty of bed rest. I mean, I could get on board with just eating a bunch of chicken laying in bed, but... <laughs> well, you know, to, honestly, to no one's surprise, treatments, these treatments did not work. And I even read a source that said doctors knew that these were not cures, but the goal was to reduce the suffering and most importantly help stop the spread of the infection, which it didn't really do. No, because everybody's just like mingling in the same space. Yeah. So in these open air pavilions... There are literal pictures, because they use them in the winter, too. So there are oh pictures of patients that have been set out there, and the patients are covered in snow. Oh, my God! Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's terrible. It, it was not... I mean, how could you... We're trying to lessen your suffering by putting you out in the freezing cold mm-hmm. and leaving you out there all day. Yeah. Hashtag good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's It was awful. And you know, especially in the wintertime, like... In the summertime, they might felt a little better because I always feel better when I get some sunshine, regardless of how I feel. But but wouldn't the heat be oppressive? I mean, they're in Louisville, right? Oh, after long, yeah. After a while, oh it totally God. would. So it probably wasn't too much better, but at least they weren't covered in snow. Yeah, sweat the sickness out. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to move into some more of the barbaric treatments. Oh, God. Yep, as if, if good vibes was not enough. Um, and what is sad is that these were thought to be cutting edge at the time. So balloons were surgically implanted in the lungs and then filled with air to expand them. And like, like literal like helium balloons? Uh-huh. Yeah, just like balloons that Ooh. you blow up. Mm-hmm. In your body. Oh my god. Yes. And to no one's surprise, this did not not only did this not work, but this was a procedure too that a lot of patients did not survive. No. There are certain things that should not be put in your body, and a balloon is one of them. Mm-hmm. Not that kind anyway. I'm sure there's different things now in medical treatment. But. Lobectomies and fun- it's like num. Oh goodness, I'm already like messing it up. I can't even say it. It's like I had the pronunciation at one point, but I've lost. It. It's like pneumoctomy or something. Yes. Um, so, so our doctors surgically remove the infected parts of the lungs, or sometimes even the whole lung, and of course that was you no know, not helpful. I mean, I feel like they were just like trial and error, and it. Mm-hmm. was more error than anything else. Yes, they would also sometimes surgically remove several rib bones from the chest wall in order to collapse the lung. And in that surgery was commonplace that the average patient would require the removal of seven to eight ribs. Though most surgeons, they only preferred, like they thought they were going to go in and move just two or three. It always ended up having to be like seven or eight. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And patients had to endure several procedures before this was finished. Do you know what, I mean, this is not funny, but 
you know what that made me think of? What? Like when you're playing Operation and they're like <sighs> hitting something. Like, yes. Like, oh, gotta get the next one. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of essentially what they were doing without the sounds and oh with life. I'm in, sure they were making a lot. You know, of with life at stake. And then another treatment was called postural rest, where the patient lies on the affected side, and this restricts the excursion of the lung and puts it to a partial rest. While I did come across a few more. They have harder names to pronounce and are harder for me just to understand, but just as bad and ineffective as everything else that I've kind of mentioned before. I mean, so. it's just like, what's the worst thing we can do to make this better? Mm -hmm. well, let's try that. That sounds painful. And like I said, unfortunately at the time, they kind of thought they were trying to do a good thing, especially like expanding the lungs with balloons. Uh. In theory, mm -hmm. yes. Yes, but... But in practice, no. No. Right, so the hospital housed a secret tunnel that started out being used as a way to get supplies into the hospital, but soon it would become known as the secret way to dispose of dead bodies. Oh, so question really quick. Yes. So were they trying to like have people come into the hospital without actually coming into the hospital so they weren't being like affected or possibly getting tuberculosis? So my understanding of this tunnel was that it started out as being a way... Uh, for like the staff and administrators to kind of come and go to get supplies essentially because no one really ever left but when supplies would arrive it got to the point with tuberculosis that i don't believe that the like suppliers wanted, wanted to, go. to go there so it's like an amazon drop-off of medicine almost because the tunnel ends at a train track so they would go okay. to the train tracks pick up supplies and there was also some kind of levy system that was in there that would they would use to bring the supplies into the sanatorium well that sounds like the best um, idea they've had the entire time yes until they decided like oh we can sneak out dead bodies through this so and this tunnel was built on the first floor with of the first of the building the corridor is 500 feet to the bottom of the hill and has a set of stairs on one side which were the stairs used for the workers and on the other side there was a cart that moved up and down the staircase which transported supplies and other necessities. And at the peak of the d disease, the sight of the dead being carried away in full view of the patients lowered the patient's morale. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Exactly. Um, so they started to use the tunnel to transport the dead. And this was done to keep the morale high of the patients so that they would not have to see the bodies, possibly people they knew and loved, that succumbed to d the disease uh, that they were fighting themselves. Like, what did they think? Like one day Fred's here and one day Fred's not. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, just miraculously recover and get to leave. True, but the hospital was also so big they could have lied and been like, "Oh, we moved into another part." He's another wing. They would have never known. That's so creepy. This tunnel became known as the body chute. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, speaking you can't of creepy. see me, but I just made a really terrible face. Mm -hmm. It sounded really terrible. <laughs> Um, the enclosed tunnel led from the hospital to train tracks at the bottom of the hill where the bodies could be lowered to the trains that would carry them away. Oh, so, <laughs> okay. Now, this will uh, we've got some better news. By 1943, the cure for tuberculosis in the form of a drug known as streptomycin and the number of tuberculosis cases gradually lowered until there was no longer a need for such a large hospital. And so the remaining patients were sent to Hazelwood Sanatorium in Louisville and Waverly Hills closed in 1961. So did the remaining patients that they, did they recover? I found no information on that. Like if they got the drug, chances were yes. Okay. Because we, it's a cure. We need a silver lining. Yes. Um, so the building was reopened in 1962 as Woodhaven 
Geriatric Center, a nursing home primarily for treating people, or excuse me, for treating aging patients with various stages of dementia and mobility limits, as well as the severely mentally handicapped. However, Woodhaven failed greatly because it was severely understaffed and overcrowded, and there were also reports over patient neglect that it was closed by the state of Kentucky in 1982. Oh my god. Like, that's one of those things that, like, really pisses me off. If you go into a, a field where you are caring for somebody, you actually mm -hmm. have to care. Yeah. And they didn't have enough people to do it either. So a man by the name of Clifford J. Todd would next buy Waverly Hills and wanted to make it into a prison. Oh, Clifford. The neighbors protested successfully and the developers dropped those plans. So he decided he wanted to turn them into apartments because nothing says home sweet home more so than a sanatorium. <laughs> I mean, I guess there are worse places to live, but... True, but like the... Like proposed prison. Well, <laughs> sorry if we have any Florida listeners. We love you, but your state's a little reptile field. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but like the prison, that plan would fail as well. So in March of 1996, Robert Alberhasky bought Waverly Hills and the surrounding area, and Alberhasky's Christ the Redeemer Foundation, Inc. made plans to construct the world's tallest statue of Jesus on the site along with an arts and worship center. It's like they're just throwing everything out there. This didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. <laughs> yes. This was tragic. Let's try this. Yes. Um, this statue was inspired by the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro. And this would have cost millions, but his plans fell through because donations to the project fell well short of expectations. In a period of candy cell. <laughs> well, in a period of a year, he raised only three thousand dollars towards the project, despite efforts to pull money across from the nation. Yeah. So that was all he made on that. Wah, wah. And after his efforts failed, Waverly Hills was sold to Tina and Charlie Maddenly in two thousand one. They still own it to this day. The Maddenleys hold tours of Waverly Hills and host a haunted house attraction each Halloween, with the proceeds going towards the restoration of the property. They're also currently restoring all the windows in the decrepit building while restoring the interior of the old sanitarium, or sanatorium, excuse me. Um, together with volunteers from the Waverly Hills Historical Society, the group now runs regular historical and ghost tours all year round. Are you going to tell me about some ghosts? Yes, this is the part where everyone's probably waiting for us to get into, and it's about the hauntings. So first we have our stereotypical hauntings, unexplained footsteps, I mean of doors, yes. <laughs> Weird noises and the sound of screaming patients emanate from the long, empty building and rooms. Oh so these God. are all like the normal hauntings. I'm just walking through and you're like, ah! <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no, or probably a patient having a balloon put in their lungs. Oh, my God. Oh, like, I don't know why. I just covered my ears. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, that thought, too. Like, I grip my chest every time I think of it. Uh, the hallways are said to be the scene of phantom shadows running around, and of course, there are numerous reports of footsteps and voices and sounds within the body chute as well. Mm -mm, mm -mm. So the first ghost, there's not a lot of information on it, it's very what it is, it's as is, um, is the ghost hearse. There are reports of a ghostly hearse seen dropping off coffins at the back of the building, which was something that happened regularly when it was a sanatorium. Oh, there is something so scary about being in the afterlife, being stuck in that loop of mm -hmm. constant death. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's... Nope. 
it's scary because of that. It's also kind of scary because you're like, crap, I'm stuck in doing this job forever. Yeah. <laughs> I would like rather go like flip burgers at McDonald's because then at least you could like, you know, sometimes McDonald's right? smells good. <laughs> um, the next ghost, you know, you mentioned like McDonald's and food smelling good, um, is I called it the doctor slash orderly in the kitchen where visitors have reported seeing a man in a white coat wandering around a trashed kitchen full of broken windows and destroyed furniture accompanied by the scent of food. And the food is said to smell good. Like some people will smell brownies. Other oh. people will smell like all sorts of like different types of meals being cooked. I'd be okay if I smelled like some lasagna in the afterlife. Right? Well, it's not even the afterlife. Like this is visitors that are going there. Well, I like, know, but I'm saying like if I was stuck doing something in the oh, afterlife. Yeah. Like, let me make lasagna forever. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, if I'm going to see a ghost or at least get some ghostly sense, I'd rather it be like brownies or pasta or some kind of hearty other other meal. Yeah. So not the worst ghost in there. And I don't think that one's ever reported as like a scary one, except maybe when they see the man sometimes. Yeah, that would be a little bit off-putting. Yes. Like, hey, guys, I'm just here for the lasagna. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> The next ghost we're going to talk about is Timmy the Ghost Boy. Oh, God. Timmy is said to be the spirit of a young boy that roams the hospital playing with a ball or searching for something to play with. Some reports say visitors may see an unexpected ball rolling down the hall or out of a room from Timmy. Other reports say the ball has been seen floating around the building as Timmy looks for someone to play with held by his invisible hand because we can't see him. We just see the ball floating down the hall. And visitors will often bring their own balls in hopes to get Tommy to play with them. But all I imagine is just like, it's like a horror movie scene, like where it's really, really dark, and out of the dark comes like a red ball. Red ball, ball yep. <laughs> it's always a red ball. I know. Red ball, red balloon. Oh. <laughs> so the next ghost that's often reported is an older woman with chains around her wrist, often believed to have been a resident when the building was a geriatric center. Oh. Why did they have chains around her? I have no clue. It's, I mean, there are straps if they need to keep a patient, like, in her room or in her bed. Um, well, I guess that's why it was close for neglect. Yeah. So, apparently, this ghost howls for help, only to run away screaming when anyone approaches her. Oh. That makes me sad and terrified at the it same is, time. It is, yeah. It's... It's really sad, and this is also kind of sad, too, because I read an, tales of another sighting, and I don't know if it's the same woman or not, but there's a woman with bleeding wrists begging for help. Yeah. Oh. It's rough. And, like, these, you know, these are probably some of the scarier ghosts. Yeah. And as I said, I'm not sure if they're the same or different specters, um, but I believe, I think that they are different spirits. Yeah. Because it's two completely different things. Yeah. I said, I think this next ghost is the creepiest one. Like, the fifth floor is said to be, like, the most scariest place. And it may be. What However, was the fifth floor? Do you know, like, when it was a sanatorium? What was the fifth floor? Like, ooh, yes, we'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, it's in my notes. Um, but I think this apparition I'm going to tell you about is the spookiest of them all. Um, so this is called the Creeper. <laughs> well, I've called many men the Creeper, so. <laughs> well, honestly, like, when I heard this name, all I could think of was the Creeper from Scooby-Doo. It's like that green little Frankenstein-looking monster just walking around going, Creeper, Creeper. <laughs> that is what I thought about until I found out what the Creeper was. I think about... <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Sorry, listeners, that's an inside joke. I'm just going to not have to know it. <laughs> 
All right, so on the third floor, uh, one of the scariest apparitions is known to reside, and this is the creeper. The creeper is said to be a shadow-like figure that may or may not be demonic, but all reports say the belief is that it is demonic. It crawls on all fours. Oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> there is something about that. No, thank mm-hmm. you. So it crawls on all fours and will crawl up the walls and on the ceiling. Mm. I don't want that. I don't accept that. No, it's, ugh. This is why I think it is the creepiest one. Because the first, yes. the fifth floor has some creep to it too, but not like this. There's nothing crawling on the ceiling at the fifth floor. Timmy and the lady with the chains and the lady with the bloody wrist, they, they're just sad. Exactly. So it is said that the proximity to the creeper brings with it an overwhelming feeling of dread. And while there's no explanation for who or what this creeper might be, some think it might have been a mistreated patient whose contorted appearance reflects the trauma that they experienced in life. Oh, no. Now that makes me sad. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories I came across, I didn't really include it in my notes, but I remember it, is that on one of the tours, uh, one of the people on the tours saw the creeper crawling through a door. And when it when it goes through the door, like apparitions do, when it goes through the door, it kind of just vanishes. And he jumped back and start and is startled. And everyone turns around and like, what's up? What happened? And he's like, how did you guys miss that? And for some odd reason, in my mind, I picture the creeper crawling like backwards, like in a crab oh, walk. Yeah, nope. mm. <laughs> I don't know why I picture that, but I mean, even if it's just on all fours, it's still creep-tastic, which I guess is why they call him the creeper. Oh. Okay, but we'll move on from the creeper. That makes me want to crawl out of my body. I know. The, like I said, I, I mean, everyone talks about how the fifth floor, like, is the most haunted and it's the most infamous or whatever, um, but I don't know how they got past the third floor. Yeah, the most doesn't mean the worst. No. All right, so the fifth floor is perhaps the most haunted, at least that is what the infamous they say, specifically room 502. The fifth floor consists of two nurses' stations, a pantry, a linen room, medicine room, and two medium-sized rooms on both sides of the two nurse stations. People have seen shapes moving in the windows, heard voices telling them to get out, and even some that tried to convince them to jump to their deaths. Oh. The... Stories also state that a nurse was found in room 502 in 1928, having hung herself from the light fixture. And apparently she was in despair over finding out that she was pregnant out of wedlock. Which clearly at that time was the worst thing ever. Yes. Another nurse who worked in room 502 in 1932 is said to have thrown herself off the roof, patio, and onto the ground below. Though some say she was pushed, but we don't know if it was by a who or a what. Some pregnant visitors have felt extremely uncomfortable in room 502 while people in general you don't have to be just pregnant to feel this next way um have felt supernaturally compelled to jump from the window even to the point of having to be talked down oh my god so i mean i guess in one sense i guess it is a little scarier in that aspect yeah let's add that to the list of places sam doesn't want to (laughs) go yes um but i made note because it is important to point out that in the reality the legendary fifth floor was never used to house or confined mentally ill patients, as some of the story states. Its residents were just as free to move about the floor as patients were on any other floor. In fact, the floor was designed for this exact purpose, with two wards centered around nurses' stations um, that were glassed in on all sides in order to maximize the sunlight, according to the wave-release treatment um, philosophy. So they had all that space for all those activities? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to get all that sunshine and good vibes that they needed to heal. 
Um, these glassed-in wards did, however, lead to rooftop patios, such as the ones the legends say that the nurse jumped from, and from which visitors allege they felt compelled to leap from. So even in the legend or stories, whatever you want to call it, there is a partial truth. There are no records of any nurse suicides during Waverly Hills' years of operation, and what's more, room 502 has no means by which a nurse could have hung herself. The room has no rafters. The sprinkler pipes that exist in the rooms now were not added until the 1970s, and the light fixture in the room is far too delicate to support the weight of a person. The only source of the the only source that was ever cited by anyone that told these stories of room 502 is a now deceased former staff member who would have been a child in elementary school age at the time of the nurse's alleged deaths. So you can take that for what it is, you know, how much truth you want to give to that. Um, I, I believe it's more likely. <laughs> well, I believe it's more likely someone could have jumped from the ledge as opposed yeah. to hung themselves in the room. Yeah. So many people have their own creepy stories from their visits to the sanatorium, and it should be no surprise that Waverly Hills has been featured on a number of paranormal TV shows. Are you ready for this extensive list? I'm ready. All right. These shows are Scariest Places on Earth, bh one Celebrity Paranormal Project. Who was in that one? I do not know. Honestly, I did not look up that specific information. I could see Flavor Flav going in there. <laughs> Flavor Flav! <laughs> Take the clock off around your neck. Take it off now. <laughs> um, Ghost Hunters. Zone Reality Channel's TV Creepy. And I don't even know what Zone Reality is. The British show Most Haunted. Paranormal Challenge. Ghost Adventures. The season 18 episode 3 of Animal Planet series Call of the Wild Men. Ghost Asylum and Paranormal Lockdown. BuzzFeed Unsolved. Kindred Spirits and Mysteries of the Abandoned. The only one I would care to see is the BuzzFeed one. Um, we watched that one, didn't we? I, I think, think I, yeah, I feel like I've seen I that like one. I've seen that mm-hmm. one. Uh, which brings us to our next point. If you want to visit the sanatorium yourself, you can. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a two-hour paranormal tour, it will cost you $25. That's cheap. That's a deal. Yes. Um, for a six-hour public investigation, it costs you $90. Can you all, like, split the cost? No, it's ninety dollars per person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least that was my understanding of the website because I found um, the website, which I'll I'll say, and then it can be in the notes too of the places actually running. And I'm pretty sure it's called the Wheel, the Real Waverly Hills. Um, it's a lot of W's and R's. <laughs> the real ghost of Waverly Hills Sanatorium. <laughs> yes. So if you want to do a private overnight investigation, which is probably what a lot of these TV shows have done, that will cost one thousand dollars. And if I remember correctly, I think the time starts. It's either 8 or 9 p.m. and only goes until 4 a.m. Well, you're there for the bewitching hour and then yes. you're ready to peace out. Mm-hmm. And for a two and a half hour historical tour, it will cost you $30. Okay, now see, I can do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to their site, and oh yeah, I did put it in my notes. It's the real realwaverlyhills.com. It reads, we are always working on the building and grounds when we don't have events. So the grounds are not always, or all the grounds are not accessible without reservation. And there are opportunities to visit. Public tours and investigation season is all year round. Private overnights are all year, all year round. And Halloween event fundraiser goes from October 1st until October 31st. Because <laughs> they do, I'm sure they do like a little haunted asylum thing there. And it yeah, probably sure. raises a lot of money. And I bet they don't have to decorate too much. No, probably not. 
all that save all that money on decorations and... mm -hmm. but that is the story of the waverly hills sanatorium and i did check it is sanatorium even though throughout my research i kept referring to it as a sanitarium so i looked up the definitions of both words and i honestly don't know the difference they're kind of the same I'm sure they're not. Like, someone out there is like, no, they're not. But Let us know. Yes. Yeah, let us know. Um, I do have a question. Mm -hmm. How many people died there? So, there are conflicting reports. Because there are reports that range between 50, 200,000 or more. Where the actual report says it was probably closer to somewhere between 10 and 20,000. Which is still no... A lot. Yeah, yeah. still a lot. That and I even read one that said it was actually like 4,000, but like no one really truly knows because a lot of this probably weren't really reported, exactly. especially if they were secretly snuck out through the body chute. Yeah. Um, and then what was, you know, it's hard telling if it was the truth or not. Yeah. I mean, when you go mm -hmm. to any place like that where someone has died like a tragic death, mm -hmm. there's going to be some residual energy. And if you go and you're like, hey, you know, pulling those like bangs, <laughs> you're going to get a response. Yeah. It's it's known as one of the most haunted places in the world. And I would believe it. It's it's got a lot of history. It has everything yeah. everything is perfect for it. It has a lot of history, not only of probably like violence and, and adequate quick care for people, but you know, they were trying to heal people from tuberculosis not in the best way, no. but in the best ways that they knew how at the time. No. If we go, we are going at 2 p.m. in the afternoon for that <laughs> historical trip, and then our ass is getting out of there. Oh, you don't want the 2.5 hour, what was it, like the public investigation or whatever? No, I will save my, what was it, $25? No, thank uh -huh. you. I'll, that's a couple trips to Starbucks. <laughs> but yeah, so that's Waverly Hills Sanatorium, and I feel like it's my first kind of darker one. You know, we have found things to laugh at, not so much about it, but in the story. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have nightmares about the creeper. Oh, goodness. Yes, the creeper. I And I looked for more information specifically on the creeper, and there just isn't much more out there than what I found, unfortunately, which maybe not may not be as unfortunate as I think that there's not more information. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about someone crawling that is so damn mm -hmm. scary, but it makes my heart pound out of my chest. Oh, goodness. If the scary. creeper was on one side coming towards me and that woman with the bloody wrist were on the other coming towards me screaming, I would run towards the woman. I'd jump in her arms. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I noticed a lot of history on the fifth floor, which is now in question because what historical records actually say the fifth, fifth floor was used for. Um, oh, gosh. I was slurring all my words. I don't know why, listeners, but, but I, I think the third floor is... <laughs> I think the third floor is the scariest place in there. Three is not a... A cool number. So no, and it's right in the middle, so you can't really escape really fast. Yeah. Um, to the rooftop or down below. I mean, I'm not fast when I'm not scared, so I mean, <laughs> I'd probably just like, you know, you have flight, fight, fright, or what is it? Flight or fight. Fight, yes, yeah, see, I'm <laughs> adding an extra letter. Flight or fight, mm -hmm. I do a freeze when I'm scared. <laughs> the other F. Oh, not me. If, if something really gets me... I was walking today at the park, and this is unrelated listeners, but I just happened to be looking over into the woods where the bamboo was, and there's this little hill mound, and on it was like a three or four foot long black snake. Ugh. It was just chillaxing in the sun. It was it was far in the woods where I wasn't close to it, but close enough to where I saw it. Because at first I was like, what is that thing? And I was like, oh, that's a snake. <laughs> and then my pace picked up immediately afterwards. It wasn't coming after me anything in it that long. I mean, I know it's not really, but I call anything that big an anaconda. Yes. Um, 
So I get that way, like if it's a snake or something, or the creeper, I would be that way. But I think with some of the other specters in there, might not be as bad. No, but I mean, I I still don't want to see anything no. like that. I would, yeah, I would scream. Like, you know when you scare me, I don't I don't run. <laughs> yeah, when I scare you, just by walking into the room. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but I, I, I feel like it would probably be a place with very heavy energy, just because yeah. of the tragedy that was there. And I don't know, probably would like to go there and just visit we could take the historical tour. Yeah. Well, I will do the historical tour with you. Here, take my $30. I'm very happy to do that. <laughs> but we're getting out of there before dark. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and I'm pretty sure enough people have booked the um, the investigations in the nighttime that, I mean, they, you have to reserve one. So there's a reason why. Probably because they're all booked. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, being a, a spirit left there every fucking night? No rest. No rest. <laughs> People coming in there yelling at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's such a big place, too. I'm sure it's very easy to get lost in there. Yeah. We should just rent it out so they can have rest for one freaking night. <laughs> <laughs> I watch a movie called Grave Encounters 1 and 2. They're two of my favorite horror movies. And now that I know Waverly Hills Sanatorium, I think of that place when I see this movie. Because it was about an asylum. They go in to do an overnight investigation. It's a TV show um, called Grave Encounters. And they get trapped in spooky, scary, horrific things happen because it's a horror, scary movie. Uh, it's found footage style, which I really liked. But but that's the type of sanatorium, it's the type of asylum that I picture that I will now associate with Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Mm. Or sanitarium. No one really knows. <laughs> I will be falling asleep thinking about the creeper. Oh, watch something happy and funny. Well, you two I, listeners. I, I plan on starting watching Keep Sweet on Netflix. But, <laughs> I mean, I, well, I don't know what's creepier, Warren Jeffs or The Creeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's all for this episode. Do you want to give out our socials? Yes. So we are on Instagram at Monsters and Murder Pod, and we are at Gmail at Monsters and Murder Pod at gmail.com. Yes, please reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Yes, and stay safe. Yes, until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.